At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at PlanetFitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details. Welcome to the History of the Cold War podcast, episode 40, U.S. Signals Intelligence and the Origins of the NSA, 1943 to 1950. I'm your host, Jeff Hogue. In 2013, it came to a shock to many when Der Spiegel, the German newspaper, announced that the United States, with the consent of the Obama administration, had tapped the German chancellor's cell phone and had been listening to her conversations from as far back as 2002 when she was leader of the opposition. Many people in the media and throughout the world were surprised and angered that the United States would be spying on presumably one of its closest European allies. Nevertheless, had one studied the Cold War and the origins and history of the NSA, the National Security Agency, most would have anticipated such a move by the NSA. In fact, one had only to know their unofficial motto to understand they spy on allies. Quote, in God we trust, all others we monitor, close quote. As pointed out in episode zero, the study of history gives you a greater perspective on our own time, and this lack of historical perspective by German leadership and the people in media created a blind spot in perceptions about the United States and U.S. intelligence. In this episode, we will be tracing the early history of signals intelligence and the origins of the NSA from the cryptological work on Axis codes during the Second World War till the outbreak of the Korean War in the summer of 1950. Like last episode with the CIA, Signals Intelligence and the NSA had a complex history with the U.S. democratic institutions. It's hard to believe, but in the 1950s, some 75% of Americans said that they trusted the government. By the end of the Cold War, only 25% had faith in the government by the 1980s. In part, this could be attributed to the Machiavellian and covert war the United States waged against the, the Soviet Union. The length, nature, and complexity of the Cold War made it easier for presidents and Congress to not openly confront issues which ate away at our democratic norms of open government and constitutional accountability. It was always easier to retreat behind the ever-growing secrecy of the intelligence establishment. Secrecy was not only used to hide repugnant or, and or Machiavellian decisions like assassinations, coups, or torture, but also to hide legal and moral considerations like monitoring of private communications or the establishment of front companies. However, this episode isn't only about espionage and the origins of the NSA. In a surprising way, it's also about the evolution of computer technology. When we think about technology breakthroughs, we often think of things like free market innovation and people like Bill Gates or Mark Zuckerberg. We imagine Silicon Valley and companies like Apple or Google We don't think hierarchical, strict institutions like the United States Navy or U.S. Army, who often had to invent the necessary machines and methods to break Russian codes. This episode, like some of our previous episodes, challenges our assumptions and stereotypes of technological development. Signals intelligence, if you recall from previous episodes, is the interception and decoding of enemy and or foreign communications traffic, which is then decoded and interpreted and then passed on to military and political decision makers. Signals intelligence had a different appeal to American military and political leaders versus the CIA, which we reviewed last episode. It was perceived as cleaner, technical, and non-evasive. It promised to be more reliable than the messy and dangerous business of spies and human betrayal. But many of these leaders were deluding themselves. Signals intelligence had its own peculiar areas of gray moral relativity, with its own unsavory characters and its own legally questionable decisions. U.S. signals intelligence dates back to the outbreak of the First World War for the United States in 1917 with the creation of the Cipher Bureau of Military Intelligence led by Herbert O. Yardley. It had become painfully aware to American officials after the infamous Zimmerman telegram that the United States needed a signals intelligence apparatus and was far behind other nations. If you recall from American history, 
The Zimmerman telegram was a proposal by the German Foreign Ministry for Mexico to declare war on the United States. By 1917, it looked to be only a matter of time before the United States joined the Allies in the First World War. Hence, the Germans had hoped a second U.S.-Mexican war would prevent or stall America's entry into the First World War. The British had intercepted the German proposal to Mexico and shared it with the United States government and media, and on March the 3rd, the German ambassador confirmed its validity, which enraged the American public and helped to justify American entry into the war that April. After the war ended in 1919, the Cipher Bureau moved to New York City and was transformed into a front company funded by the Army and the State Department and known as the Black Chamber, which produced and sold codes. Its true mission, however, was to break the communications, chiefly diplomatic, of other nations. Its greatest success came in 1922 when its surveillance of Japanese communications helped American diplomats negotiate with Japan at the Washington Naval Conference on Naval Arms Limitations. The Cipher Bureau's methods were somewhat questionable. Deals with Western Union and other telegraph companies gave the Cipher Bureau unprecedented access to messages entering and exiting the United States. When Secretary of State Henry Stimson decided to close the agency in 1929, he cited moral opposition to its increasing surveillance. Quote, gentlemen do not read each other's mail, close quote. Moreover, the Hoover administration did not see the need for peacetime surveillance and the agency was shuttered. The end of the Cipher Bureau left Yardley unemployed and bitter. In 1931, he published the American Black Chamber, detailing the activities and exploits of the Cipher Bureau. It shocked the public and the intelligence community, as well as the countries Yardley had spied on. And so, the founding father of American surveillance also became its first traitor. Long before Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers or Edward Snowden, America had a complicated relationship with intelligence and those who exposed America's secrets. Nevertheless, much of the information published in Yardley's 1931 book was out of date. In 1929, five months before the end of the Cipher Bureau, the U.S. Army had decided to form its own agency, Signals Intelligence Service, SIS, independent of the State Department. The, the SIS expanded rapidly in the 1930s, especially in the Pacific, where it opened bases from Alaska to China to Australia in response to the increasingly aggressive Japanese Empire. The Navy as well developed its own Signals Intelligence Department, but these were relatively small organizations, far behind the other great powers. In 1939, Army Signals Intelligence was only 19 people, and the Navy Signals Intelligence was 36. In 1940, though, the British, in an unprecedented move, began to assist American Signals Intelligence. The British provided American cryptologists with German, Italian, and Japanese messages to work on. The United States and Great Britain had become concerned about the growing power of Japan in the Pacific after their victory over Russia in 1905. In 1914, Japan had joined the Allies in World War I. By the 1920s, though, Japan's territorial, political, and economic interests started to clash with the Western powers. In 1931, Japan invaded Manchuria. In 1932, she walked out of the League of Nations. In 1936, Japan withdrew from the Washington Naval Treaty. And in 1937, Japan invaded China proper in a brutal war of aggression, bombing, murdering, and raping millions of Chinese civilians. In September 1940, the same month that the British had broken the German Enigma Code, the Americans broke the Japanese diplomatic code Purple. The code name for this intelligence was MAGIC. Despite this intelligence coup, the effort was muddled because of bitter bureaucratic infighting between the Army and Navy. Secondly, as we explained last episode, this information was only made available to the President, the Secretary of State, Secretary of War, and the Navy, all individuals who didn't have the time or insight to shift, sift through the data to warn of a danger of an attack on Pearl Harbor. The British had most of their forces wrapped up in Europe and Africa fighting the Germans and Italians, whereas France and Holland were occupied with only minimal forces located in Asia with obsolete aircraft and equipment. The Japanese believed that a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor would knock the United States out of the war and leave the Pacific ripe for the taking. For the first six months after Pearl Harbor, it appeared they were correct in these assumptions. Guam quickly fell, as did Wake and the American bases in the eastern Pacific. The Japanese invaded the Philippines and Malaya and sunk the British battleship Prince of Wales near Singapore. Hong Kong fell on Christmas Day, and American intelligence personnel were quickly evacuated from the Philippines and redeployed to Australia. 
1943, a formal agreement was signed between the Americans and British for complete cooperation on all-access military code systems. A large American contingent also joined the Enigma Project at Bletchley Park, and the U.S. built its own intercept station in Kent. Nevertheless, the agreement said nothing on diplomatic codes, and both sides refrained from sharing on this point. The British themselves used a complex one-time paper tape encoded system and did not trust the Americans, and they suspected them in trying to spy on them. The British also shared Enigma secrets with the Soviets, but said that they came from high-placed agents in the German army and Luftwaffe, looking to keep Ultra a secret from the Russians. The Soviets were never able to break the Enigma code themselves during the war, but they were aware that the British had broken the code. They had at least two spies at Bletchley Park, but they worked in the translation department, not the cryptanalysis department. The Soviets did capture Enigma devices at the end of the war as the Third Reich collapsed. They had worked out the mathematics of breaking the code, but they lacked the early computers or booms like the British and Americans to carry out the task. The war necessitated a massive expansion of signals intelligence. Arlington Hall Junior College, a finishing school for girls, was taken by the Army under the Emergency War Powers Act in 1942 as their new signals intelligence headquarters. The site was within a short distance of the new Pentagon building, the soon-to-be largest office building in the world. The Navy took possession of its own girls' school, the Mount Vernon Academy on Nebraska Avenue in northwest Washington. Both offices became virtual decryption factories, operating around the clock with shifts of people coming and going, tied into a global network of listening stations that fed an uninterrupted stream of intercepted communications. Besides the 13,000 workers in Washington, there were thousands more in the field, manning a dozen principal intercept posts from Maine to the far-flung Aleutian Islands. Teams of enlisted men took down Morse code messages by hand and then retransmitted the copied traffic via encrypted landline or radio teleprinter back to Washington or other cryptoanalytic processing centers in Hawaii and Australia. The global nature of the war was reflected in the global nature of communications at this time, and thus an intercept opportunity to be exploited. For example, the Americans learned much about German preparations for Allied landings in France via the Japanese embassy in Berlin, which radioed Tokyo 6,000 miles away. The work involved a huge amount of painstaking drudgery, and the American solution was to parcel the work out like a factory line and to use as much technology as possible. Almost all the codebreakers who would work for the Army and Navy signals intelligence over the next several years were, were newcomers to cryptology. They came from a variety of backgrounds, such as New York law firms, electrical engineers from MIT, the ship's band of the battleship California, which had been sunk at Pearl Harbor, winners of puzzle competitions, radio hobbyists, ex-missionaries, and the foremost experts on cuneiform from ancient Assyria. Thousands of women also became staffers and workers in the new sprawling bureaucracy. More than 70% of the staff at Arlington Hall were civilians, and by the war's end, more than 90% were women. The Navy, on the other hand, had a deep tradition of never permitting an officer to take orders from a civilian and insisted on all of its women becoming members of the WAVES, or Women Accepted for Voluntary Emergency Service. By war's end, some 80% of its cryptoanalysts were women. African Americans also joined Army Signals Intelligence after pressure from the White House, and in 1944, the first African Americans were assigned to the Commercial Codes Division. By 1947, many worked in the Russian Language Department, and about 100 African American men and women served in the department. Unfortunately, despite their qualifications, the majority of whom were college graduates, they were paid less than their white colleagues and had to perform the most menial tasks such as feeding tapes into computers or stamping documents. Some African Americans despairingly referred to Arlington Hall as the plantation, but a few African Americans in those early years were able to find more rewarding roles as engineers. By the summer of 1942, the Navy also bought 100 massive electromechanical calculating machines built by National Cash Register Company for a cost of $6 million. They were nicknamed BOMS. Uh, they were originally designed by the British and Alan Turning at Bletchley Park to crack the Enigma code. Specifications were later shared with the Americans who tasked National Cash Register with making the copies. They weighed two tons apiece and housed 64 mortar-driven wheels whose electrical contacts spun at speeds of up to 1,725 revolutions per minute. When they all ran together, they required a quarter of a megawatt of electricity, enough to power a 1,000 homes. 
At the height of the Battle of the Atlantic, nearly half of the staff at Nebraska office was working on Enigma. The rest were trying to keep up with the huge volumes of Japanese naval traffic and the ever-changing complexity of code systems, most of which use code books versus cipher machines like Enigma. IBM card-punching machines, it turned out, were the best at cracking Japanese codes. The process involved combing through intercepted messages hunting for repetitions. Repetitions could lead to discernible patterns, which could lead to understanding the code and hence cracking the code. Compared to a contemporary laptop or even your cell phone, punch card machines were extremely primitive, but they could carry out massive data searches that would have overwhelmed a human. By 1943, the Army and Navy were operating hundreds of IBM machines and paying IBM $750,000 a year in rental fees while burning through hundreds of thousands of punch cards a month. You see, during this time, IBM didn't sell its machines, it leased them. It made its real money selling the punch cards, which were one-time use and were required to operate the machines. Despite the huge American investment into signals intelligence, it was still overwhelmed. An example is the Japanese army traffic alone was 100,000 messages a month. It was agreed to let the British focus their attention on intercepting German signals, and the Americans would focus on the Japanese so as not to duplicate efforts. Nevertheless, unannounced to the British, the Americans were attempting a new large-scale project to crack the Soviet codes, although the British themselves, secretly in 1943, had resumed their efforts at breaking Soviet codes as well. So if the Soviets were an ally, why would the U.S. want to crack their codes? For one, as we reviewed in our earlier episodes, the Americans, especially the military, was suspicious of the Soviet Union, especially as it relates to its communist system, which most in the U.S. military found abhorrent. Second, in 1943, many feared that Stalin might be negotiating with the Japanese secretly. More importantly, the mindset after Pearl Harbor was, was never again would the U.S. be caught off guard. Everyone was to be monitored, especially a great power like the Soviet Union, friend or not. Every country was a legitimate target on everything from its industry to its agriculture, from its politics to its internal social forces. It was believed one detail could make the difference between U.S. success or failure. U.S. intelligence leaders believed that with the wartime influx of men and money, it was, best, it was the best chance for them to build an all-encompassing intelligence network before eventual peace would eat away once again at their budgets. The Army and Navy had projects to crack Soviet diplomatic codes back in the late 1930s, but had shelved their programs in 1941 with the outbreak of the war. The Soviet diplomatic code was viewed by many as unbreakable. Finland, a minor Axis power, had made some success in 1943 in breaking the Soviet one-time pad diplomatic ciphers, which was discovered by American Signals Intelligence when they shared the results with the Japanese, whose codes the Americans had broken. Soviet diplomatic codes were typically four digits long, 0000 to 9999, allowing for 10,000 different words. To each of the code groups in a message to be transmitted, a second set of digits drawn in sequence from a book or pad were used. This second step obscured the actual meaning of the message under an additional layer of concealment, ensuring even if a word was repeated, it would appear in the transmission as an entirely different four-digit number each time. A significant amount of raw Russian traffic was available to American codebreakers. Given the vast tracts of the Soviet Empire, much of their communications traffic was radio, which could be intercepted versus landlines. Most of the coded messages proved to be relatively simple hand-cipher systems used by the Soviet Army, Navy, police, railroads, and Communist Party. They dealt with more mundane matters like weather, orders to icebreakers, reports on production, etc., the most valuable traffic was Soviet diplomatic traffic, and U.S. intelligence made an agreement with RCA, one of the major commercial cablegram suppliers internationally, to allow American intelligence to access messages, messages transmitted almost certainly an illegal act. This action would set a precedent for NSA behaviors for decades to come. America's entry into World War II, though, made the question mute for the duration of the war, as official wartime censorship required all cables to be turned over for government inspection. After the war, the military persuaded the cable companies to still provide them with copies of international telegrams, arguing that it was not a violation of the Fourth Amendment under the 1928 Supreme Court uh, Olmstead v. United States case. For our international listeners, the Fourth Amendment prevents the government from illegally searching or taking our private property without a court order and warrant. Many people were worried about the arrangement, and the Army went to great lengths to keep it a secret. The presidents of RCA, 
ITT and Western Union sought repeated assurances from the government that the program was legal and essential for national security and that their companies would not face prosecution if it came to light. In 1947, Forrestal personally authorized the program but added that he could not bind his successors. Moreover, during the war in 1944, the U.S. negotiated an agreement with the Soviets to establish a direct radio teleprinter link from the Pentagon to Moscow via an American radio station in Algiers to facilitate better communications versus the troublesome and unreliable radio link over the North Pole. The two governments shared the channel and operated their own teleprinters at each end. What the Soviets didn't know was that a teleprinter at Arlington Hall automatically copied every message passing over the circuit. For many years, it would prove to be the most important source of Soviet traffic available to American codebreakers. The Navy codebreakers were also able to pick up some Soviet naval communications traffic from the Far East at their monitoring stations on the West Coast, Alaska, and Hawaii. The project to crack the Soviet codes was extremely secret, even by World War II standards. Even FDR and the higher echelons of the U.S. government were not informed about the project. The waves who worked on the project at the Nebraska Avenue were told explicitly that they informed anyone about the project they would be shot. Despite the complexity of the Soviet diplomatic code, it was still heavily used, and with any heavily used code, it was inevitable that some messages would eventually be enciphered using overlap sequences of digit from the same pages of the same codebook. From such an overlap, it was possible for codebreakers to begin the long and laborious process to detect the underlying code groups and then to start to understand the individual messages. As the war ended, the British suspected the United States was up to something. They were using British cryptographic knowledge in matters that had very little to do with winning the war. The two sides had grown exceptionally close on both a professional and personal level. Many lifelong friendships and many marriages were made at Bletchley Park. But by the spring of 1945, it was far from clear what, if any, collaboration would continue after the war. Not everyone was in love with the British. The U.S. Navy had always hated them. They felt that the British Navy treated them with contempt, especially in the First World War, although it should be noted that the Navy hated to share its secrets with its own countrymen, including the Army, congressmen, or even the President of the United States. The British still had a lot to offer the Americans, though. They had better intercept site locations uh, and a global network that rivaled the United States. They had access to to tap British-owned cables that still carried a good deal of communications traffic as well. The British intelligence services didn't have to worry about the legal issues as well, like their American counterparts. Moreover, the military knew that with the coming of peace, budgets would be slashed again, and the British cryptologists would overtake any lead the Americans might have once their funding disappeared. The Army argued with the Navy that it would be foolish to end the British and American intelligence cooperation. In the end, the Navy begrudgingly agreed to the continued Anglo-American signals uh, intelligence cooperation, and in June 1945, when the British approached the Americans about cracking Soviet codes, the Americans agreed to work with the British. The advent of atomic weapons also changed the nature of intelligence gathering in the early Cold War. Intelligence in peacetime was no longer just long-term assessments of potential enemies and their military and political structures, but advanced warning against a potentially devastating surprise attack. Collective security and international law were no guarantee of security. Surprise attacks had been a hallmark of World War II, and there was no reason to believe that they would be less so in the future. In May, the Navy had already increased the number of personnel working on the Russian problem from 106 to 743. Nevertheless, despite this reallocation of resources, the numbers of analysts continued to fall as the war came to an end. And by the end of the war, that September, 200 people were left on the project. Thousands of sailors were leaving the service to go back to civilian life, and those who enjoyed the job of cryptanalysis lacked a career path within the Navy. You couldn't make admiral by working in signals intelligence at this time. The Army and Navy knew the loss of this talent couldn't easily be replaced, and when work on breaking a code stopped and people left, it was difficult for new teams to pick up from where the old team had left off. The end of the war had also meant a loss of important or high-value information. With Japan and Germany defeated, Army and Navy intelligence, despite reading the diplomatic codes of 45 countries, had little of value. Reports were now devoted to topics like French schools in Syria, the marriage of the Belgian regent, and the Pope's views on the upcoming elections in Colombia. The topic everyone in Washington wanted to know more about, the Soviet Union, they still had nothing on. 
despite intercepting over 5,000 Soviet messages a month, attempts in the summer of 1945 to combine Army and Navy intelligence into one organization ended in brutal bureaucratic struggles that continued through the fall. The Army strongly favored the merger, as did some in the Navy, arguing a combined service would better resist outside manipulation and wasteful duplication. During the war, the British, noticing these divisions between the U.S. Army and Navy, would often play one organization off of the other to get what they wanted. Other times, debates would become so heated between the Army and Navy that the British, a foreign government, mind you, would act as an intermediary between the two services. The Navy was determined, though, that no sailor would take orders from a civilian or, God forbid, a general. In many respects, the Army and Navy absolutely hated each other. As an example, in the lead-up to the attack on Pearl Harbor, they argued about who should decode the Japanese diplomatic code, and it was eventually agreed that the Navy would decode the messages on odd days of the month and that the Army on even days of the month. The Navy didn't like to share information with the Army because they employed a large number of civilians whom the Navy felt they couldn't be trusted. At one point, the Navy insisted that the Army forbid civilians from working on a SIGBA cipher machine. The Army pointed out that this was a ridiculous request as the inventor of the machine was a civilian. There was also a cultural difference between the Army and Navy signals intelligence. The Army was more freewheeling and civilian, whereas the Navy was rigid, hierarchical, and also exhibited a strain of deep anti-Semitism. The Navy didn't like that some of the Army's top cryptographers were Jews. I want to take a moment and thank our Patreon supporters and those of you who have made one-time contributions over the past year. If you enjoy episodes about intelligence, espionage, and spying like this episode or episodes about the KGB, CIA, and British intelligence, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter at the $5 level or for whatever amount you think is appropriate. Episodes take 10 to 15 hours to create on average and can cost between $10 to $50 or more in books and references to make the show which doesn't include the cost of the, uh, to host the podcast or maintain the website. So again, please consider becoming a Patreon supporter if you can by making a contribution through the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. If you're tired of me interrupting the narrative to beg for money, please consider becoming our Patreon supporter so that you can access our commercial free episodes. Now back to the show. By February 1946, the Army and Navy agreed to a ceasefire in their dispute with an agreement to keep their establishment separate for now, but with a rotating coordinator who would allocate tasks that fell within the, their joint responsibility for diplomatic codes. The court, coordinator had no power to order anyone to do anything, though, and had no actual authority. Knowledge was power in Washington turf wars, and the habit of hoarding secrets continued. By this time, the Allies were intercepting some 20,000 Soviet messages a month. Dozens of code systems were, were being studied, and some had been cracked, but the value of this information was questionable at best. Nearly all the low-level codes broken used fairly simple hand-decipherment systems such as additive books that were heavily reused and thus no great challenge to break. The question was, was all of this tedious and manhour intensive work worth the investment when clearly none of these systems were carrying high-level communications? Instead of reading strategic assessments of the Red Army, High Command, or Stalin's communications with vassals and commanders in Eastern Europe, they were reading about animal diseases in Siberia or accounting of rail cars under repair. Like the Soviet diplomatic code, Soviet military codes were using machine-generated ciphers to protect their most secret military communications, but what those devices were was a complete secret to the Allies. Despite the infighting and inability to crack the Soviet diplomatic code and military codes, the Allies got a break when a Soviet diplomat, Igor Guzansko, defected in Ottawa with over 109 documents, which we spoke about in episode 16. The Allies quickly interviewed him about the Soviet cipher system. The Allies didn't gain any significant insights, but the interviews produced a noteworthy haul of small details to work from. Kuzansko confirmed that the diplomatic code did use one-time pads and that the system used a four-digit number code system I explained earlier. They also learned that the diplomatic traffic also included NKVD reports and GRU reports, or Soviet military intelligence reports. The Allies also turned to an unlikely ally as well in this new struggle, ex-Nazis. Like I pointed out last episode, in World War II, the U.S. and Britain sided with communists to fight fascists. In the Cold War, the U.S. and Britain sided with fascists to fight communists. 
This wasn't an alliance of love, but one of convenience. The Nazis wanted new lives for themselves and to evade justice for crimes they had committed, whereas the British and Americans wanted their technical knowledge to confront their new geopolitical opponent, the Soviet Union. To be fair, I should point out that the Soviets themselves were also working with many former Nazis as well for many of the same reasons. They wanted their technical knowledge to close the technological gap between the Soviet Union and the Allies. As such, there was a race on between the Allies and Soviets to find and capture Germans with certain technical knowledge. U.S. Army intelligence combed through POW camps to locate German codebreakers who had been working on Soviet codes during the war. Many Germans were eager to help the Americans and British. One POW in the possession of the 7th Army came forward with his unit and di directed the Americans to where they had buried their equipment and documents before they had surrendered. The next day, the Americans drove the prisoners to the location, and indeed, they dug up eight tons of machinery and documents. In a few days' time, the equipment, along with the six of the German operators, were transported back to England in Bletchley Park, where they set up their machines and began to print out streams of intercepted Soviet traffic. The operation had to be quickly shut down, though, as that interfered with the local radio BBC signals, and people in the area were becoming interested in what was going on. Nine of the machines were packed up and sent to the U.S., and the German POWs were interned for another four months of questioning. The U.S. also made another surprise discovery while dredging a small lake in Bavaria to recover the bodies of downed American pilots. They discovered a large waterproof box, inside of which was the complete archive of the German OKW, or High Command Cipher Bureau. The Americans all were also able to identify the members of the German Foreign Office Cryptological Unit outside of Libzing. The U.S. quickly captured them and over 100,000 documents, which were spirited out of the Soviet zone of occupation. Included in this treasure trove were partly burnt copies of several code books that the Finns had captured from the Soviet embassy and passed on to the Germans. With the code books and German insights from documents and eager German helpers, they had a fair understanding of the Soviet radio call signs, contact procedures, the organization of the Red Army's radio network, and the encipherment systems of the Soviet teleprinter traffic. Despite these lucky breaks, the Army, Navy, and British had to temporarily halt work as they lacked personnel and equipment to continue. The main issue besides the shortage of manpower was a lack of sufficient intercepted military traffic to work from. The few devices the British and, and Americans had captured from the Germans weren't enough to monitor Soviet military traffic. The Army and Navy had to beg for funds to manufacture copies of the German devices, and a small assembly line was set up in the basement underneath the cafeteria at Arlington Hall to produce them. But it wasn't until the very end of 1946 that they started to arrive at Army and Navy intercept locations. The Soviet military traffic was codenamed Longfellow. Nevertheless, even though they would be able to copy Soviet military traffic, they still couldn't read it. It was deemed necessary to build a super bomb uh, that would crack the code and allow the Allies to read the traffic. The super bomb project faced repeated delays, though. The device was an ambitious gamble. Its calculating and logical circuits were to be built around 40,000 vacuum tubes twice the number of any computers in existence or even in development. For those that might not be familiar, vacuum tubes were the precursors to computer chips or transistors. The first electronic computers used vacuum tubes as switches, and although the tubes worked, they had many problems. The tube was an inefficient as a switch. It consumed a great deal of electrical power and gave off enormous heat, a significant problem in the early systems. Primarily because of the heat they generated, tubes were notoriously unreliable in larger systems, and one failed every couple of hours or so. The invention of the transistor was one of the most important developments leading to the personal computer revolution. The transistor was invented in 1947 and announced in 1948 by Bell Laboratory. The transistor, which essentially functions as a solid-state electronic switch, replaced the less suitable vacuum tube. Because the transistor was so much smaller and consumed significantly less power, a computer system built with transistors was also much smaller, faster, and more efficient than a computer system built with vacuum tubes. The project was called Hiawatha, and $1 million was allocated to the project and approved in late 1947, just a few months before the Soviets abruptly stopped using the Longfellow system, causing the military to cancel the project. The Soviet Longfellow System Teleprinter Scrambler was among the most sophisticated in the world and appeared to be based on the German SZ-40 device. 
Princeton, Harvard, and the National Bureau of Standards were all working on computers, but none of them wanted to build a specific computer for the Navy. National Cash Register, IBM, and Eastman Kodak, who'd all made machines for the Navy during the war, weren't interested in building a special purpose equipment and wanted to get back to the commercial business. Navy basically then decided to create its own company. One of its officers, Howard Ingstrom, left the Navy along with a few other engineers who had worked there and started a new company, Engineering Research Associates. From behind the scenes, Rear Admiral Joseph Redmond asked Forrestal if he could help secure Wall Street funding for the project. In 1946, the company was incorporated with $20,000 in equity and a $200,000 line of credit. More than three dozen of ERA's new employees came from Navy Signals Intelligence. Other engineers, chemists, and physicists had just recently been released from work in the defense industry after the war as well. This was supplemented by a supply of recent college graduates from the University of Minnesota. ERA set up a production facility in a 140,000-square-feet factory in St. Paul. The building had originally been a radiator foundry uh, dating back to the 1920s. There was no climate control, and employees wore mittens and coats in the winter and went shirtless in the summer. It was frequently necessary to chase out birds who had nested in the building. ERA immediately won a series of non-competitive bids for the Navy. The Navy had awarded ERA a $950,000 contract to build a computer named Barnaby, after a cartoon character from the time. One of ERA's earliest breakthroughs was on memory for computers. IBM sorters and tabulators could perform basic data compilation tasks, but the machines lacked memory, which made hunting for patterns through compare sweeps of data sets very difficult. There was no way to store intermediate results. To do a thorough search for patterns or double hits at every possible relative overlap of every possible pair of messages an IBM brute force run required millions of IBM punch cards and then scanning those millions of punch cards by human eye looking for repetition. During the war, the Army and Navy had built makeshift crude memory devices that they fitted to the IBM machines to help, but IBM strictly forbid this as the machines were leased and not owned by the government. The code breakers would thus post lookouts and remove the devices whenever IBM would arrive to service the machines. These devices were a stopgap, though. The IBM machines were never designed for what the Army and Navy were trying to use them for. The other tool that was at their disposal was Rapid Analytical Machine, or RAM, a tape-based optical comparator. Um, this system imposed two superimposed punched paper tapes of 70-millimeter film exposed patterns of OPEC transparent spots. Run at extremely high speeds, simultaneously measuring the light coming through as many as 100 groups at a time, making it possible to locate double hits and repetitions. This copperhead comparator used to search for double hits could scan 500 messages against 500 messages in four and a half hours versus the IBM brute force method, which could take 400 hours. The British Colossus did have a primitive memory saved to a vacuum tubes versus tape, but Colossus was specifically built to tackle Enigma and a very temperamental machine. The British did offer one of their machines to the U.S., but the Navy decided to move in a different direction. The Navy's answer to this problem was the world's first magnetic drum memory. The ERA had been waiting on a new generation of vacuum tubes from RCA, but delays made them switch to a magnetic drum. Roughly the size and shape of a bicycle tire, it was uh, a foot thick and spun at 50 rotations per minute, but could hold thousands of words of data and access them in any order, regardless of where they had been stored on the drum. This machine could impl implement all the functions that both the IBM machine calculations plus the flexibility to select specific data with equal ease from anywhere at in a large data set and compare it with any other piece of data. When the Army heard the news that the Navy had a new computer, it both inspired and frustrated them to learn that the Navy had surpassed them technologically. The Army quickly visited Princeton, Penn State, the new Raytheon Company, and the British Bureau of Standards, which had built the Colossus, to find a computer to compete with the Navy. Like the Navy, though, the Army came to the conclusion that they would have to develop their own computer. The Army did, however, buy a memory system developed by the Moore School Group. This system was, a dis was distinct in that it exploited sound waves through mercury in an exotic memory system with about 1,024 words of memory. The Army named their computer Abnar after another cartoon character of the period. 
Abnar was also different in that it was designed to handle large streams of different types of data, such as magnetic tape, uh, paper tape, and IBM punch cards. Like the Navy's computer, Abnar could also perform complex calculations and compare two data streams looking for patterns. Nevertheless, despite the technological breakthroughs that these two computers represented, the war error optical com- uh, comparator, like the Navy's Copperhead, remained faster at performing comparison tasks than computers until the mid-1950s. Nevertheless, many of the features and technology built into these computers would be incorporated into the computers IBM built for the NSA in the 1960s. The Army and Navy also tried to tackle the manpower issue. Finding people who wanted to do cryptology would be very different uh, in the post-war world. One thing is that they had learned from the war was that aptitude tests had shown little value to, in selecting good cryptologists. Only time-consuming on-the-job training would sort out those suited for the role. There was, after all, no such thing as a pool of professional cryptological experts in the civilian world for the military to recruit from, like, say, pilots or engineers. If the military wanted professional cryptologists, it would have to create the profession from the ground up with the pay, benefits, and professional career that it would entail. It would also have to provide all the professional training. No colleges or universities were offering courses in cryptology. In the war, it was possible to recruit seasoned professionals like archaeologists or mathematicians to fill this gap, but in peacetime, a permanent organization would have to be built and continually staffed with young men and women at the very onset of their careers. Cryptanalysis required time, experience, and resiliency. The long hours of false leads and blind alleys demand faith and ultimate success and unwavering belief in the mission, all attributes of the young. By 1949, some 1,073 of the 3,124 workers in the Army and Navy Signals Intelligence were assigned to the Russian problem, in addition to 389 British. Hundreds more manned the 524 sites tasked to collect Soviet radio signals. It was a huge surge from the handful of people who had been working on the problem just a few years before. In 1947, the Army was finally able to make some progress on the diplomatic code working from captured uh, code books and the knowledge Zuzinsko provided. They found a number of duplicated keys in the messages from 1943 to 1945. During the height of the war, there had been a dis- disruption in the production and supply of one-time code books from the Soviet Union. As a result of this wartime shortage, the Soviets had to use some of their codes books multiple times. This was just enough for the army to find a discernible pattern and crack the code. Even after the Soviets switched their codes, the U.S. still had a wealth of information to decode in what became the Viona Project, which we have spoken about in past episodes. The Americans had so many intercepted messages, it wasn't until 1980 that they deciphered the last message. Many of these messages contained Soviet cover names for dozens of Soviet agents working in the West, which we partly covered in Episode 16. The U.S. Army soon discovered that the Soviets had high-ranking spies in both the British and American government. They also learned how skilled and seasoned the Soviets were at espionage. Dead drops, communication procedures, and shaking tails were all novel techniques for the the unexperienced Americans. This might all seem rather matter-of-fact to people in 2017 after movies like James Bond and Mission Impossible, but in 1948, these were hallmarks of a professionalism Western governments were unaware of. The KGB had none of the Dick Tracy's schoolboy bungling of the OSS or early CIA, The Army didn't share this information with the president, CIA, or its bitter rival, the Navy. Nevertheless, it did share the information with the British and the FBI. The FBI immediately put the information to use, arresting enemy spies, but soon discovered it was impossible to convict them without using Viona evidence and hence alerting the Soviets that their codes had been broken. As we saw in episode 16, their only recourse was to force spies out of their jobs and generally make their lives miserable. Even Alger Hiss was convicted of perjury and not spying. The Rosenbergs, though convicted of spying and executed, became a cause celeb against intelligence community until the 1990s with the release of the Viona Papers, which proved their culpability. The FBI efforts to root out legitimate communists was also hampered by Republicans like Senator McCarthy and the House on Un-American Activities Committee that started a virtual witch hunt for communists and government in popular society. Ironically, the poison politics of the 1950s helped to give the real Soviet spies the perfect cover. They were able to hide amongst the thousands of innocent people who had been falsely accused of being communist agents. 
Nevertheless, the victory of Iona was short-lived. In September 1947, there was a clear drop in official messages broadcast on the internal radio telegraphs in the Soviet Union. In December 1947, a notice was issued by Moscow that coded telegraph messages were no longer to be sent over unscrambled radio teleprinter channels, but were restricted to landlines. At the same time, there was an upsurge in scrambled radio traffic. That April, the use of the Longfellow teleprinter traffic stopped, and a number of codes throughout the Soviet security system were changed. Why these changes were made remain not entirely clear to us. One theory is that the Soviets had routinely changed their codes as an effort to update their systems. The second, and I believe the more likely, is that after having discovered the existence of Iona by Kim Philby and other KGB spies, one of which worked at Army Intelligence that we spoke about in Episode 16, the Soviets decided to revamp their entire communication system. In the end, the Army and Navy dis- decided to assume that their efforts to break Soviet codes had been compromised and decided to move forward under that assumption. A new Soviet code system named Albatross appeared and would st- stymie the attempts of the Americans and British to break the code for the years to come. The Americans would have to marshal e- ever greater resources and computers to break the code. At this juncture, the only real intel left to the British and Americans were hundreds of thousands of routine, low-level communications traffic we spoke about earlier. But this did not seem like a very promising source of information. Despite this, a small, plain-language unit under Jacob Gurin enthusiastically produced several insightful reports on Soviet industrial ministries using this low-level intelligence. Jacob had been born in Odessa and had immigrated to the United States with his family, and he spoke Russian fluently. He was a top-rated Russian linguist at Army Intelligence. Jacob and his team took a metadata approach to intelligence. Even the most inconsequential data, like coal supplies, rail car loadings, and labor requirements, could be pieced together to produce a comprehensive picture of the Soviet economy. He had begun in 1947 with a small staff of six, but by early 1948, he had a staff of over 100 Russian linguists. The British had also helped with their own unit of Russian language, which helped to translate the traffic. Most of Gorin's staff were Russian immigrants. They, were identifi- they identified munitions, production plants, assessed the capacity of the Soviet transportation system, estimated the vehicle production, etc. For years, the playing language program was the primary source of information on the Soviet Union, especially in regards to the Soviet atomic bomb project. It was also one of the only ways to monitor to see if the Soviets were preparing for war. Gurn's team also started to interpret and analyze the data they translated, angering some in military intelligence and the CIA. This was an act, though, of necessity more than intelligence politics. Of the millions of messages intercepted over the years, only 0.3% were ever published. They amassed a huge card file of places, names, and industries mentioned in every message. This system would become the, the nucleus of the NSA's legendary Central Reference Library on the Soviet defense industry known as CREF. This type of massive data collection and analysis would become a hallmark of the NSA for decades to come. At its peak, Arlington Hall was intercepting about 100,000 Japanese messages, Army communications a month. By 1950, the Navy and Army were intercepting about a million messages a month. Simply recording, sorting, and delivering so much traffic was an unprecedented challenge. The Americans had come to the conclusion that moving forward, clever tricks and finesse alone wouldn't break Soviet codes. Brute force would be at the path forward. More intercepts, more people, more and more powerful computers, and more money would be necessary moving forward. In conclusion, the Army and Navy made many technological breakthroughs leading up to the creation of the NSA in 1952, which we will cover in a future uh, episode. Nevertheless, despite this progress, it was short-lived as a result of Soviet spies who undermined the Allied ability to capitalize on their technological advantage. Just like the atomic bomb that was compromised by Soviet intelligence, so was Viona. Despite the American investment in computer technology, Soviet human assets quickly discovered the project and reported back to Moscow, nullifying the short-term benefits of the American investment in technology. However, it shouldn't be overlooked that the longer-term benefits of this investment are immeasurable to the creation of our contemporary world. I know this is a counterfactual, but it is questionable if the computer would have developed along the same lines if it hadn't been for the Cold War. As we saw, despite their initial uh, development in World War II with bombs and the British Colossus, many of the companies like National Cash Register, Kodak, and IBM were hesitant about future investment in computers after the war. 
Given this simple fact, I think it's fair to say that computer technology would be radically different or even its, imp- its possible non-existence in our contemporary world without the unique challenges of code breaking presented to signals intelligence during the early Cold War. This is the first of a few episodes about the NSA and signals intelligence that I'll be making during the show. Next episode, I will be examining the FBI and domestic intelligence during the early Cold War. So tune in for our next episode. I want to, as always, thank our Patreon contributors for making this show possible. If you like this show or any of our past episodes, please consider sharing it on social media or with a friend. I want to also thank those who have shared the show with your friends and family. I know it's a small gesture, but it goes a long way in getting us more listeners, which leads to more listeners and more donations so we can bring you more Cold War content. If you don't have a lot of friends in the history and you are already a contributor but would still like to help the podcast, give us a positive review on iTunes or the platform of your choice. If you want to follow us on social media, check out pictures for this episode, ask questions, or donate to the podcast, check out the website at www.historyofthecoldwarpodcast.com, one word. Well, there, don't forget to fill out our survey so that you can help us to bring you a better show. It's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. At Planet Fitness, you can get down with your judgment-free self. Join for only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, Planet Fitness has cardio, weights, and locker rooms that sparkle like a glass of New Year's champagne. Only $1 down, $10 a month, no commitment. Now through January 15th, join in-club or online at planetfitness.com. Planet Fitness, the judgment-free zone. Offer expires January 15th. Stop by any of our 15 area locations. Annual membership fee applies. Participating locations only. See club for details.